Well, tonight we're doing um, our second to last switch series. And um, you know we're doing the putting off and the putting on found in, uh, uh, in Colossians. And uh, tonight we're, we're going to look at the topic of, of discontentment. Now, I said tongue-in-cheek this morning, kind of, of uh, well, not kind of, I was joking. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm sure none of you have ever been, been discontent. Have you ever been discontent? I mean, I have, like today. Today, I've been discontent. Uh, preparing for this, I've been, I've been discontent. I, I mean, frankly, um, God is gracious. He tells us the truth, as we, we talked about this morning. And, and, and whenever I look into the Word and I see what God says about my heart, about the human heart, I, I find it is the most amazing factory for discontentment and dissatisfaction that I have, I have ever seen. And it really doesn't require uh, some major shift in, in circumstances. Um, I, can have, uh, I can have too much to do and wish I had less to do. I can have nothing to do and within about an hour I'm bored. You understand what I'm talking about? I can get exactly what I want... Um, and immediately want more, or get exactly what I want and wish something was, was different about it. I mean, if it would just, be, it would just be a little bit better, then I would be completely satisfied. I mean, I'm satisfied, but if it was just a little bit better, I could be, be even more satisfied. And frankly, whenever I, when I think about that, it, it's disgusting. It really is. And it, I'm talking about me. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about you. Discontentment is a, is a disease of desire that plagues the, the, the human heart. It plagues every human being under the, under the sun. It's, it's so prolific that you can go outside of the Bible and find proverbs about discontentment, right? The grass is greener on the other side. And then you finish that up, yes, and it's usually over the septic tank, right? It's, it's true. And... It's a good way to, to, think about, to think about discontentment. Um, discontentment is not always sinful. You can be discontent about, about good things. Um, you can be discontent about your spiritual growth, and that's a good thing. Uh, you can be discontent about how many people that you've witnessed to. You can be discontent about the... the uh, the overwhelming uh, sickness of sin that's in our that's in our country. You can be discontent about about how how much you're you're living for the Lord. So when we're talking about the topic of of discontentment, I'm not talking about the desire to do more for Jesus. I'm not talking about being discontent about about good things. I mean, I hope that that you're you look at your heart on a regular basis and. And I hope you're not satisfied if, if you don't see any growth. Um, and I hope you seek more from the Lord. I, I would say, if you're, if you're thinking about it, as believers, we want to fan the flames of dissatisfaction with our, with our mediocrity, and, and we want to smother the, the noxious gas of, of discontentment whenever it, it, it manifests in a sinful way. 
So tonight, this is what I want to want to try to, to do. These are topical. We're going to look at a specific passage of, of Scripture, but here's our, here's our map for this evening. We're going to define discontentment. We're going to define what, what, what we mean by that, what the Bible means by that. We're going to show how specifically it is sin. I'm going to show you the specific commandment that it violates and how it violates that that commandment. We're going to look at a passage to, to help us deal with it. We're going to look at a specific passage where the Apostle Paul deals and battles with, with discontentment, and he teaches us how to win the battle. And then we're going to look at a... I'm going to give you a battle plan to kill it, something very simple, something memorable. And then finally, I'm going to give you some, some further resources that, uh, that you can read. So that's our, that's our road map. Uh, for tonight, so let's get started with the uh, with the definition. Discontentment defined. If you would say, uh, you know, you, you've had somebody, you teachers, you say, okay, um, what is discontentment? Define discontentment. What's the opposite of contentment? Right? You've had students that do that to you. Well, contentment is the state of being mentally or emotionally satisfied with the with the way things are. That's how Webster's defines it. Discontentment is a longing for something better than the present situation. So contentment is being satisfied with with present situation or circumstances or things. And discontentment is a longing for for something better than than the present situation. Now, Now, that doesn't sound too bad unless you focus on the on the term longing. And you realize that the human heart is the primary instrument that manufactures longings. And so if our hearts were perfect and if we weren't depraved sinners, then, then, then we wouldn't really have any issue. But, but Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us that our hearts have massive issues. And even after we're saved... We have to manage our hearts because we're still in unredeemed flesh. Salvation, we were, the penalty of our sin was, was forgiven, removed at, at the moment that, that we received Christ. The power of sin, as you've heard, is being uh, taken out of your life gradually. And then ultimately one day salvation will be complete in the sense of redemption. And we won't have any temptation to sin. We'll have a, we'll have a, a, a new body. So the human heart is the primary instrument that manufactures longings, and so a longing for something better than our present circumstance can have major can have a major issue. Couple that with the fact that God is the one who orders our lives, and you have a big issue. The human heart is manufacturing longings that are kicking against and contrary to what God has ordained for for our lives. Proverbs twenty seven twenty tells us Sheol and Adam are never satisfied. The grave and hell are never satisfied. They're, 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 they never get enough. Nor are the eyes of man ever satisfied. The eyes of man, the desires of the heart are compared to the, to the grave, compared, to, compared to, to death. Discontentment, as we're talking about it, then is a, is a, is a sense of dissatisfaction. It's a kind of restless craving or desire for something that you don't have that is often the result 
of ongoing and unchanging circumstances which God has ordained. Now, I don't expect you to write that down, and you get a very simple definition as we, as we go. But you think about the heart, the desires, the longings of the heart, and then God superintending over our lives, and those two things clashing together, and that is where discontentment comes from. Now, I started thinking about where could you go in the Bible for an example of discontentment. I mean, you, know, you have an example of, of, of proud people. You have an example of, of impetuous Peter. You have faithful Paul. You have fearful Timothy. Where could I go to the, in the Bible to find an example, a good biblical example of discontentment? Elijah and his depression and fear and, and, uh, and running, from the, running, running from the wicked queen. Frankly, you could go just about anywhere in the Bible. But I think you know, the, the glaring example is the nation of Israel. Just go look at the nation of Israel because that's what the New Testament uses as an example, a biblical example for their grumblings and their discontentments. I mean, think about Israel. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob, and then Joseph... And God preserves the family by leading the family into Egypt, and He uses Egypt as an incubator and turns the, a family into a nation of a couple million people. And then at God's appointed time, He delivers them, leads them out. He, he raises up Moses. And the plagues, and we were looking at those during the book of Exodus, aren't falling, they're not falling on Israel, they're falling on Egypt, and they're falling on, on, on Pharaoh. He leads them out. You have the Passover, the blood over the door, and, and, and they even leave Egypt. And the Egyptians are giving them their gold and, and, and their earrings and things for the journey. Leads them to the, to the Red Sea. They're hemmed in. They're pinned in. No place to go. God parts the Red Sea. They come to the other side. They sing praises to the Lord on the, on the other side. They come to the mountain where, where God's... Uh, God's man Moses is going up on the mountain to receive the words of the covenant, the words of the law, and Aaron, his right hand stays below, and Moses is gone for but a few days. And what does Israel do? They get discontent. How long is he going to be up there? He's never coming back. Aaron, make for us a God. Here is your God, O Israel, the one that led us out of Egypt that fast. And you think they learned their lesson then? No, they didn't. Over and over and over and over. And you can obviously point right back at, right back at yourself. In my fallen nature, I am naturally, you are naturally discontent. I'm not content because I'm always playing out in my mind what Paul Tripp calls the if only life. The if only life. If I only had more money in the bank, I'd be content. If only I had a church that followed my leadership. Or if you only had a church that did things the way that, that you would do. If only I had children who were better behaved. If only I had a job that I enjoyed. The if only life. That's the simple definition of discontentment, an if-only life. And, and as, the, as the offspring of, of Adam, the, the if-onlys are endless, aren't they? 
In our self-idolatry, here's a great quote by Jeff Robinson, in our self-idolatry, we tend to think that a change in our circumstances will bring us joy and contentment. For us, the grass is always greener unless we learn to find our contentment in something that is transcendent and eternal. You see, whenever you get on the other side of the the fence to that green grass, there's always another fence, another patch of green grass. And you get to that patch of green grass and there's always another fence and there's always another patch of green grass. You, you have seen glaring examples of that, of probably people that you know that go, from, that go from partner to partner or person to person or job to job or church to church or, or circumstance to circumstance. What's driving that? Of course, they always have a story for, for how it's, it's not an unspiritual thing that they're doing, but in reality, the issue is is dissatisfaction, discontentment in the heart. And until you latch on to something, until your longings are are attached to something that is transcendent and something that is eternal, until it is attached and fixed on on the living God and, and on His Word, you will never find contentment. You will always be discontent. And so the human heart is always a battle to look to Christ, right? Set your affections on the things above, not on the things of the, of the earth. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. It's a constant battle to fix your eyes and your heart and your mind on, on that which is transcendent and eternal, rather than, as C.S. Lewis said, the mud pies that we typically, that we typically make and, and play with here. And there are plenty of scriptures that, that warn against... Discontentment, Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, that's the Lord, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, I want you to notice that you're, what you're to look away from. You're to, you're to look away from, keep your life free from the love of money. You're to look away from, from, from focusing on what you, what you don't have. You're to be content with what, what you have and, and then you're to look to Christ's promise. You'll find satisfaction in the fact that God will never leave you nor forsake you, even if your money leaves you and forsakes you. And mine leaves and forsakes me on a regular basis, as I don't know about you. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 Give thanks in all circumstances, in all things. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We looked at that during Thanksgiving. 1 Timothy 6, 6-10 This one's really long. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these things, we will be content. Notice contentment and content. Now watch the contrast here. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires and plunge people into, the, into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some has, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now I want you to notice in the first part, there's the contrast. The first part, this contentment is used twice. And in the second part, it shows what the real issue is. And he uses this term, desires. Desire, those who desire to be rich, 
those who have follow harmful desires, the love of money, through the cravings, some have wandered away. Luke twelve fifteen. I mean, I, these are like five out of twenty some. Okay, Luke twelve fifteen. And he said to them, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. How about a positive one? Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Why will He give you the desires of your heart? Because your desire is Him. You delight in, in Him. So there's plenty of passages. There's a biblical example. There's a definition. How serious is discontentment? How serious is it? Is it just a, a little sin compared to fornication? Just a little sin compared to, to greed? Well, it's a pretty big sin. Puritan Thomas Boston in his sermon, The, the Hellish Sin of Discontentment, argues... And I think properly that it that it it goes against the tenth commandment. The ten command, tenth commandment forbids discontentment. Thou shalt not covet. The sin of discontentment. How big is it? It's a sin. Discontentment is mistrusting God. When you're discontent, it shows a distrust for God. Contentment is trusting in God implicitly and discontent is the is the opposite of that discontent amounts to complaining against god it's a it's my desire to be sovereign i i think i have a plan for me i think my plan is is better than god's plans and again here's another quote from paul tripp which is great he's just really good on this topic paul tripp says I love me and have a wonderful plan for my life. <laughs> it's true. Discontentment exhibits a desire to be, to be sovereign. And like Adam and Eve, we desire to taste of the tree that will transform us into sovereign kings rather than submissive subjects. Wasn't that the issue? Isn't that how Satan tempted them, if you eat of the tree, you will be like God. You will be like the sovereign king. You will be like the one who, who is in control. Discontentment exhibits a desire to be sovereign. Discontentment covets something that God has not been pleased to give us. This is probably where I find it, it's... It's easiest to see in my in my own heart. Um, you know, you think discontentment. You think that that you don't have something that that you want. And the problem is that in a lot of cases, when we get that way, we we leave God out of it. I think it's just like we were talking about um, talking about this morning, the thorn in the flesh, that that suffering and testing and and trials can be God's grace to us to protect us from. From ourselves, the contrary wind that blows, that makes us lower our sails, doesn't always indicate it's not always evil. It can be protecting us from the hidden reef that that we cannot 
that we cannot see. I mean, think about this. This is, a, this is an attack on the goodness of God. God has not been pleased to give us something, and whatever that something is, it, we should have it. We want it. It's, it's a good thing. He's denying something from us. Now, think about that. God gave His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, you don't think you could trust Him with trivial things? Adrian Rogers said, if God gave you His Son, do you think that that if he, you come along and ask for his bicycle, he wouldn't give you that too? I mean, that's exactly what Romans chapter 8, verse 32 tells us. Look at the sacrifice of Christ. There's nothing greater than that. And so you're not going to lack anything that God's going to withhold from you that's, that's good. And so if the Lord is withholding it from you, it might be a very good reason that He's withholding it from you. And you have the opportunity to fix your eyes on Christ and His goodness or fix your eyes on what you like and grow discontent and sin. Finally, discontentment subtly, or perhaps not so subtly, communicates that God has, has made a mistake. You're saying, my present circumstances are wrong and they should be otherwise. So says Brian. (laughs) You're saying, I will only be content when they change to suit my desires. Then I'll be happy. And one more. Discontentment denies the wisdom of God and exalts my wisdom. This isn't... What I think is best, I think is wise. Isn't that precisely what Eve did in the garden in questioning the goodness of God's Word? Discontentment was involved in the first sin. Hath God really said? And that's the question in all of our hearts. Pretty serious. Pretty serious sin. So let's look at a passage that will help us. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. It's a very familiar passage, but it is the primary passage. If you want to look in the New Testament, it's where the Apostle Paul waged war against discontentment. And he's going to teach us how to win the battle. And I say win the battle. Win the battle is is continuing to look to Christ because the battle is already won. You just won't be free from the battlefield until you're redeemed and you have a new body and you're in heaven. Philippians 4. Let's begin reading in verse 10. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but but you lack the opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content, to not be discontent. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul gives two main secrets here to contentment. 
The Apostle Paul battled this. There are two secrets here that I think he gives. The first is contentment is learned. Contentment is learned. Look, if you would, at verse um, 11. Not that I speak in regard to need. Now, the Apostle Paul here is talking about um, financial care that the Philippian church was, was giving to him as, as the teacher. And he says, I rejoice when I, in verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at your last, your care of me has flourished again. They've given before, now they're able to give again. And he says, though you surely did care, it's not that, that, that you stopped caring for me, you just lacked opportunity. And now that opportunity has come again. But he says, it wasn't that I was clamoring for it. It's not that I was speaking in regard to, you know, to need or to, to want, because I've learned something. I've learned that in whatever state I am to be content, I've learned contentment. Contentment is a process to learn. You want proof of that? How content is your three-year-old? Or your three-year-old grandchild? How content is your six-year-old? Hopefully more content than your three-year-old. How content is your 18-year-old or your 19-year-old? How content are you at 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or, or 60? Hopefully you're growing. <laughs> you're learning. How are you learning to be content? It's a process. The I there is emphatic. I, I, have, I have learned, Paul said. I've learned. It's, it means a completed process. He's going, through, he's going through, a, through a process. And look at this process. Look at how he learns this. I've learned in whatever state, in verse 11, to be content. And he learns. He's taught through his circumstances. Verse 12. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned, there's the word again, both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to, and to suffer need. I have learned in my, in my abject poverty and I have learned with my four-course meal and filet mignon, as my dad used to say. He was taught through circumstances. How do you learn contentment? Well, you hear a sermon. You're convicted. You submit to the Word. But then you live that out. And you're going to be faced tomorrow, or maybe even tonight, with circumstances that are going to challenge where your eyes are focused, where your longings are. It's going to challenge your longings, and you're going to learn. You're either going to do the right thing, or you're going to do the wrong thing, and then you're going to self-correct, or God's going to correct, or something is going to happen. The circumstances that God ordains for your life, that come into your life, you, you learn and you go through a process of, of learning. He was taught through his circumstances and he was ex instructed in extremes. There's variety. He says, I know how to be abased and I know how to, to abound. I, I know how to, to be completely destitute and I know how to be full. Everywhere and are all things... And everything in between, he says. There's your circumstances. He goes from one extreme to poverty to, to being full and everywhere and all things. Everything in between. I have learned. I went through the process of, of learning to be full 
and to be hungry, to abound and to, to, to suffer need. Which is harder? To be with or without? They say, well, I mean, poor believers in other parts of the world that don't have the same level of resources that Americans have, and certain, I understand that. They, we eat three meals a day, and for some of us, more than three meals. And they only have one, or they may have none, and you say it's a horrible situation, and we want to relieve the suffering from the, from the poor. But don't forget, in every circumstance, you're accountable to the Lord. And it's, a, it's just as great a temptation to have a lot than to have, than to have none. In some ways, having none sets you up for the, for the, uh, for the temptation of, of covetousness, but having lots sets you up for the temptation of being selfish and greedy, right? Paul says in all of those circumstances, whether you're tempted to hoard and be greedy or whether you're tempted to, to covet and, and do things that, that you, you shouldn't do, you learn through your circumstances, whatever those circumstances are. Now, does that mean that you just kind of sit back and say, well, I don't have a job, so God didn't give me a job, so I'm just going to be content without a job, or, well, um, you know you shouldn't have any ambition in life because God just set your course. Is that what he's talking about? Of course that's not what he's talking about. Adrian Rogers said, if you want to get a job, pray for one and then pick up the one ads. And, uh, and then uh, I like even better what he said about, about a wife. Pray for one and then take a shower and put on some cologne, right? I've learned. Contentment is learned. There's the first secret. And secondly, contentment ultimately comes through Christ. There are people who can go through every circumstance and all in between. It amazes me at times when I think about standing even here in Lynchburg, Virginia, preaching the Word to you from where I came from and who, who I was and who I am, a nobody. You can have all the circumstances in the world, but if you don't have Christ, you're not going to learn true contentment. I mean, you have people that are, that are well-traveled, but they're unsaved Look at what he says. Now he ends this in verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What is all things? I can run a four-second, 40-yard dash because I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. Is that what that passage means? I hate to bust your bubble, but no. It's not what it means. It's in the context here. I can do all things. What are all things? Well, he tells us everywhere in all things. I've learned both to be full and to be hungry. I can do all things. I can go through all my circumstances. I can be abased or I can abound and everything in between. And I can learn that. I can find contentment through Christ because Christ strengthens me to focus my eyes on Him and not on my circumstances and sees me through. All things, all situations, and everything in between. Where do you go as a believer when your circumstances won't change? You go to the Lord. 
Where do you go whenever you get discontent with your circumstances and you, you find your heart beginning to, to grumble? You, you go to the Lord. You look to Christ. Where do you go when you don't have enough? You go to the Lord. Where do you go when you have too much and you're tempted to, to hold on to it with a clenched fist? You go to the Lord and say, loosen my fingers. You go to the Lord. You can do all things through Christ, all of those circumstances. So there's a passage where the Apostle Paul teaches us that contentment is learned and contentment is found through Christ. Now let me give you a practical battle plan. Steps to battle discontentment. Because even the Apostle Paul, even though he went through this process of, of learning, still struggled and, and you will. So there's three words here. Here's the battle plan. Stop. Look and, and, and think. I'd write these down, and I'm going to go over each one. The first word here is stop. It comes from John Bloom, desiring God. Stop. The first thing he says when you're battling discontentment, the battle plan, you stop. The first thing that you do when you recognize discontentment is you stop what you're doing. Uh, couldn't help but think of the... The church joke of uh, of Pastor Brody when I saw Don Updike this morning when Don Updike imitated Pastor Brody was was it Bob Newhart where he's doing the counseling thing and the person's sitting there and he listens to them he says stop it <laughs> just stop it I thought of that I'm like okay okay stop really yeah really stop stop grumbling and complaining stop sulking and stomping around the house. Stop the critical tongue toward others that often comes from abundance of a, of a discontented heart. Stop looking at the covetousness producing catalogs and tweets and fake Facebook pages. Fake book pages. That wasn't a Freudian slip. Why do you think they pay people thousands and thousands of dollars to put together catalogs? What's their goal? To produce a godly attitude and contentment in your life, right? I mean, they're paid to create, to play against your human heart to create discontentment. You want that? You need that? you got to have that, and you got to have that now. You don't just need the iPhone 5, you need the iPhone 6. And you don't just need the iPhone 6, you need the iPhone 6S. And you don't just need the iPhone 6S, you need the, the newest version with the watch that goes with it. And you don't just need the watch, you don't want the plain watch with the rubber band. You want the one with the, the titanium that goes around it. And you don't just want that one. You want the one that is designer, that is whatever. I forget the, the name of the, the French designer company that does it. You stop. Fake book pages, you only get to see the good stuff. How many of you, and you don't raise your hand, but how many of you, whenever you, when you put, now I'm not saying you're intentionally trying to do what the catalogs are doing, but you don't put pictures out there whenever, whenever the kid is screaming and crying and snot's flying down the side of its face and throwing a fit in the middle of the floor, right? You put the one where it's nice, you know, you and Junior and Mom and Dad are roasting wieners and marshmallows and everybody's smiling and great. Now, in one sense, it's good. You want to share your life with other people. So I'm, I'm not hammering on, on social media. I'm just telling you that when somebody else is looking at that, 
when their husband hasn't spoken to them for a week and they've been fighting and there's been all kinds of difficulties, they're looking at that going, I wish my husband was like that. I wish my life was like that. I wish my kids would sit there and roast weenies and marshmallows. And you're sitting there thinking, well, my kids don't do that all the time. No. But we present a false reality. There's a false reality. And then we begin to play into that. And then we try to live up to those stereotypes. And we try to live up to those things. And then we, the next thing you know, you begin to live plastic lives that are, that are unfulfilled. Stop. Look. Stop long enough. Stop the grumbling and the complaining, the sulking and the stomping long enough to look. And where do you look? Look at what you're looking at. There's the battle plan. Stop and look. What are you focused on? You're discontent because you perceive an obstacle between you and your prize. Have you ever got between a dog and its bowl? Get between a discontented human heart and what it wants, and you'll find something a whole lot worse than a growling dog. People will do anything. They will lie, cheat, steal, self-deceive. Look at what you're looking at. Name the prize that, that you want, and you're going to find it's probably not Jesus since Romans 8, 38 and 39 tells us that nothing can separate us from Him. Stop, look, and think. It goes back to our Philippians passage. After you stop, after you focus on what you're looking at, then think. Thinking is getting our spiritual eyes back on the right prize, and that only comes by thinking. We ponder. What we ponder is what, what we perceive. We're, we're discontent because we've been meditating on the wrong things. Listen, bad thinking produces bad behavior. Bad thinking produces bad behavior. Bad thinking and bad behavior produce bad emotions, bad feelings. Bad theology produces bad practice. And if you, the flip side of that is true. Good thinking produces good behavior under the power of the Holy Spirit and good feelings. Do you feel good whenever you think the wrong things and do the wrong things? Of course you don't. You shouldn't. Do you feel good? Whenever you know you've been obedient to the Lord and you follow the Lord, of course you do. You should. We're discontent because we've been meditating on the wrong things and we become weighed down with lead-like frustration. And you pick up the easy yoke, Matthew eleven thirty, of delight in Jesus by doing what Paul instructed to the Philippians. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on, think about these things. Set your affections on the things above. Stop. What's the second one? Look. What's the third one? There's the battle plan. 
Let me give you some final resources. Most of these are Puritan except for, for one. Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. The Art of Divine Contentment by Thomas Watson. The Crook in the Lot by Thomas Boston. Most of this is very cheap. It's been reproduced. It's really, really old. The sermon that I quoted from, The Hellish Sin of Discontentment by Thomas Boston. There is a really good ebook called The Art of Grace and Contentment, which blends teaching from Puritans on the issue of, of contentment. A lot of different ones. So you can just Google The Art of Grace and Contentment, and it's super cheap, the ebook. And here is one that we actually have in our bookstore. It's called The Greener Grass Conspiracy, Finding Contentment on Your Side of the Fence by Stephen Altrog. Just a few resources there to go deeper in the, in the issue. The longings of the heart fixed on something that is transcendent and eternal is the solution to discontentment. Would you bow your heads and let me pray?